are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are doing updates in addiction medicine today. We are talking about removal of the X waiver and its implications and OUD and special populations. So we're going to talk about what's going on in the world of opioid use disorders in adolescents and in our older folks. All right, Paula. So start us out. This is breaking news. So we have had the removal of the X waiver. So what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, this is really huge news in the arena of treating opioid use disorder, not only for addiction medicine, addiction psychiatry, behavioral health providers, but really for all people who prescribe um, controlled substances. Because as of January 25th, 2023, SAMHSA, according to the Omnibus Bill, which is Section 1262 of the Consolidated Appropriations Act, moved the federal requirement for practitioners to submit a notice of intent or a waiver requirement to prescribe buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder. So this has been in effect since 2003. So it's been a 20-year process where providers who have the intention to treat patients with opioid use disorder in the outpatient setting as opposed to in an opioid treatment program, which used to be known as methadone methadone clinics, used to have to apply after doing so many hours of training to SAMHSA for a special waiver to be added to their DEA license after they were notified that they had the intention to prescribe buprenorphine. They were granted this waiver for their DEA, and then they were allowed, in quotation marks, to prescribe buprenorphine to a limited number of patients, right, Darlene? And we have seen an evolution of this over the years. Like, it started out and it still remained that initially uh, providers could treat 30 patients with buprenorphine, and then you could apply for an additional um, waiver to prescribe up to 100 patients in your second year of prescribing buprenorphine. And more recently, in the last couple of years, you could um, apply to treat 275 patients. But, you know, there's several issues with this, right? First of all, providers used to have to go through a pretty intensive training to prescribe buprenorphine. Now, it's eight hours of training for MD and DOs, and it was 24 hours for advanced practitioners like PAs and nurse practitioners. So still additional training to whatever else we have going on in our busy lives. And then you have to go through the process after the training of applying for the waiver. And this seemed to be a barrier for a lot of folks. They didn't either want to do the training or they felt like maybe it was outside of their wheelhouse. And then, of course, there were these kind of weird and arbitrary limits on how many patients you could care for by prescribing buprenorphine to them for opioid use disorder. Which, you know, is really ironic because if you think about what's happened with the opioid crisis, it initially started in terms of this wave, like the first wave started, Darlene, as we well are aware, with overprescribing of prescription opioids. 
right? Absolutely. I think we have argued this for years. Like we had to have a waiver to treat patients with opiate use disorders, but But, we never put any limits or caps on the amount of prescriptions for opiates on prescriptions on prescribers there, which was quite ironic. (laughs) Yeah, so annoying. So very, very frustrating. Okay, so what this has changed, this update, which is the omnibus bill now says that you no longer need to have a waiver. So you don't need to apply to SAMHSA to have the special edition or exception on your DEA license. If you have a current DEA registration, that includes Schedule Three drugs. So any practitioner who can prescribe Schedule Three drugs and higher, so three, four, five, may now prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder, as long as your state law allows it. And they've also said SAMHSA encourages you to do so. And this, of course, is in this light of the crushing fentanyl overdose rates and overall opioid um, epidemic, which continues to rage on. So. There are some changes that are going to happen in terms of um, training requirements for DEA registration in general. Those are going to be announced um, and effective in June. We're still going to have some training requirements for DEA, but not specific to buprenorphine. It's probably going to be an eight-hour training around opioid prescribing, not necessarily buprenorphine, but it's going to be mandatory for everybody who has a DEA. So that's a big change. One, no more buprenorphine waiver. Anyone can prescribe it. It's just like any other medication that we prescribe. You know, you have to learn how to use it, use it judiciously, know who's appropriate for it and how to monitor it. We're the same with insulin. It's the same with biologics or other medications. And in fact, I'd argue that buprenorphine is a lot more simple to use than to prescribe than insulin or biologics, wouldn't you say? I would agree. It still has... It is something that still requires monitoring and there probably is, there's still some training and some nuances, but that's why we exist is providing we, there's so many resources available out there to learn how to prescribe this appropriately and to do the appropriate monitoring. And I I guess the only thing is that now, you know, the limit, um, Uh, 275 patients is gone as well. So that's a big thing as well. I mean, there there should be no limit. I mean, there's- Yeah, why are we turning away patients who are asking for treatment? That's always seems arbitrary. (laughs) Right, we should be encouraging anyone who is struggling with opioid use disorder to seek treatment and we should be providing it with as low barrier as possible, of course, by still keeping people safe and using risk mitigation, but- Uh, We want to offer this life-saving treatment to people as a first-line treatment, and this is backed up by lots of research and data and by organizations like NIDA and the NIH and the CDC and SAMHSA and the APA and, you know, American Family, um, you know, the American Academy of Family Physicians and um, all, all the organizations support the treatment of opioid use disorder with buprenorphine. Let's be clear. There's no science-backed, evidence-based organization in the world that does not recognize buprenorphine as first-line treatment for opioid use disorder. It is first-line treatment, and it should be offered to everybody who has this problem. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Opioid use disorder in adolescence. This came from, this was the ASAM, just the weekly updates. There was a really interesting article that came out and 
we just started having some discussions back and forth on this because I think Paula, we encounter, we treat, we both treat adolescents and we still encounter frequently patients that are in these situations that one are still not just on the tail, what we were just talking about are still not offered buprenorphine. And so that's what I wanted to talk a little bit about and just talk about some of the evidence and some of the studies out there that show, again, effectiveness, and then some of the nuances that we see with adolescents. So from NIDA, just a couple different things. This is just directly from NIDA. It says 25% of adolescents who begin abusing prescription drugs. So when we talk about adolescents, this is 12 to 17 years of age, but those who begin abusing by the age of 13 or younger they will develop a substance use disorder at some time in their life. So 25%, that's really high. That is so high. Number one, that puts them really high risk. And things just important things to consider. And I think this is rather intuitive, but it's just important treatment considerations. Adolescents generally, giving their shorter histories of substance use, they tend to have experienced relatively fewer adverse consequences. So they tend to also have more resistance. And so they don't actively, they don't feel they need help or tend to seek treatment on their own. And so legal interventions and sanctions or family pressure play, that's probably what plays the biggest role in them entering treatment. That's usually where we encounter them in treatment but it still works. So I think that's the key is the, even though they may not be in treatment willingly when you are seeing them in treatment. So sometimes you're seeing these really kind of maybe disengaged or defiant adolescents in treatment. And we just think, and so sometimes I feel like we're not maybe giving them all of the best options because we think they're not really fully engaged in treatment. We need to we need to give them all of the appropriate and, be and best treatment options because number one, their risks are incredibly high of continuing in their addiction, but they, this treatment will still work for them. It was a really interesting study. This was from NIDA on the Clinical Trials Networks. This was a 12-week study that provided, this talked about buprenorphine maintenance treatment on adolescents. So it went through ages 15 to 21 who were opiate dependent, and this found improved outcomes among youth who received continued treatment with buprenorphine naloxone versus those who just received what we call, quote, detox, so just short-term treatment. So when we looked at week 12 on the patients who were not given buprenorphine maintenance, only 20% remained in treatment and abstinent versus those who were given buprenorphine maintenance, 70% were still remained in treatment. You also saw in the 12-week buprenorphine group, you saw obviously less opiate use, less injecting. I think one thing that this study also showed that was really tragic is you had four of the 83 patients that were in the study, even though it was a small study, 
who tested negative for hepatitis C at baseline, you were positive at week 12. I I guess what really struck me about that is these are children with, you know, testing positive for hepatitis C. This stresses the importance of just, again, treatment. So another really interesting study that came out was buprenorphine dispensing among youth less than 19 years in the United States from 2015 to 2020 by Andrew Taranella. And a great summary of this was posted by Dr. Eli Kahan. And you can read his blog on pediatrics blog at UC San Francisco. One thing that it noted was we saw a sharp increase in opiate overdose in teens 14 to 18. And this was an increase by 94% from 2019 to 2020. And then an additional 20% increase in just from 2020 to 2021. And really, unfortunately, is the rate of medications for opioid use disorders decreased by 45% between 2015 to 2020. So we saw this sharp increase in opiate overdose, this 45% decrease in medications for opiate use disorders. Older adolescents, roughly 32 out of every 100,000, receive medications for opiate use disorder. That's not very, that's not very much. No, it's so not. Basically, if you look at it a little differently, that's one out of every 225 are receiving basically what we just said, appropriate treatment for their opiate use disorder. So younger youth were even less likely to receive prescriptions. So as we know, in the U.S., lepronolaxone is and is and has been FDA at age 16 and older. Not to like single anyone out, but one one area that this author notes is probably our pediatricians are probably one of the areas of underutilization of buprenorphine. But this is from a pediatric blog who is noting that despite being the main source of care for most of these patients, pediatricians are only prescribing roughly 2% of medications regimens. And and that's what's confusing is why this significant decrease, because they said even they saw among pediatricians, there was a 39% decrease between 2015 to 2020. So even the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a policy statement and noted that it's extremely underutilized And again, this goes back to the confusion, stigma, and limited resources that are severely restricting access to both buprenorphine for adolescents and adults. I just thought those two articles were really interesting and just pointing out, number one, benefits and the significant harm by, number one, not treating and then the benefit when we do treat how much how much of an improvement it does. I just had to pull this quote. I loved this quote from this came directly from Nidam statement on treating youth and adolescents that says you need to think of the adolescent brain as often likened to a car with a fully functioning gas pedal, the reward system, but weak brakes, the prefrontal cortex. <laughs> I I love that. And this is why I think 
treatment and sustained treatment is so important in this population. And it's such at, they're such at a pivotal time that if we give them safe and appropriate treatment, you can have the greatest impact. All right, Paula, what else? Yeah. Well, no, I think that's, I love that quote. It's awesome. And, you know, I, there's hesitancy around prescribing buprenorphine, especially, well, actually buprenorphine and methadone to adolescents. And I, I think, yeah. you know, without looking at the data around the barriers and the perceived um, challenges from prescribers, I'm, I think it has to do with not wanting to give adolescents agonist therapy that they're then subject to, you know, that they're then liable to having withdrawal from if they stop suddenly, um, etc. However, you know, this is similar to um, the whole rhetoric around prescribing medications for opioid use disorder in general is that we, in, in the light of the of the alternatives, people just die. You know, the study you read reminded me of the Keiko study, which is the famous study in 2003, which came out of the um, one of the Scandinavian countries showing that people who are maintained on buprenorphine versus people who are detoxified, quotation marks, from mm -hmm. buprenorphine over six to eight weeks and then kept off of it. The groups who are, the group who's maintained on it, not only retain in treatment at a rate of 75%, they stay alive more likely as opposed to the group who are detoxified and then don't retain in treatment and about 20% of them are dead at the end of it. So, you know, there's hesitancy to put kids on especially young people on a medication that they're then physically dependent on. But the alternative is that they may not live to be 25 or 35 or 45, you know, and we know these medications are safe in the long term. They're much safer than using illicit opioids, especially nowadays. I mean, I don't know if illicit opioids ever were safe or even prescription opioids for that matter. So, you know, I think it's, it's a mind shift. I think we have to educate parents. We have to educate caregivers. We have to educate educators and therapists and the whole community about abstinence-based treatment versus medication-assisted therapies that um, have been proven to save people's lives. And then you bring up this point about um, hepatitis C contraction. And then, of course, all the other social sequela that come comes from ongoing substance use that just you know, if someone's left untreated, it can just create all kinds of chaos if it doesn't result in overdose. So I, I love that. I think it's a really good set of papers that you reviewed. And we need to maybe examine why people aren't prescribing it more, you know, and maybe it's lack of access to treatment providers. But now maybe with the X waiver um, going away, that will change. I don't know. Well, and I think it's just such a good reminder to us that these 20-year-olds and 25-year-olds that we're treating now, all of them, when we go back to their histories, they were using it in their teens. And so we're connecting with these, teen, these teens and these adolescents. It's like, this is the time to treat them. Don't. Why are we waiting? Why do we wait till they've blown up their whole life and derailed and and waiting till then till they have felonies and can't find jobs and a place to live because of those consequences and so it's like let's let's do something opioid use disorder in our older populations this this we could do a whole other episode on and i think we will because the more we research this it just keeps coming and i think this is 
obviously a booming population. Similar, it's an interesting like dichotomy here. We see the two ends. I was just telling Paula before we started recording when it was describing kind of, I guess the best way to describe it is the personality types between our adolescents and our older populations. Both of these types tend to think that they don't need treatment. And so they're less likely sometimes to come to you just asking for treatment. And so they, and they are frequently missed and often they can be iatrogenic, but we still are seeing a sharp increase in heroin users and IV users in our older population. So you're dealing with, again, that dynamic of the infections and all of those things that go along with that. So I think that's a real, it's just such a really interesting population because you're also dealing with all of the other things that come with the diseases of aging. And plus you have somebody who also has an opiate use disorder on top of that. So it's, it's a very complex population, but this is one that desperately, I think, really needs treatment and someone who honestly really knows knows what they're doing to help them. Just some of the number of older adults who entered treatment nearly tripled between 2007 and 2017 compared to those with what we say typical onset. So that's before the age of 30. So that's what we're comparing it to. Those with what we call late onset heroin use were more likely to be white, female, more highly educated and rural. I think that's really interesting because we try to stigmatize sometimes, but like that's and so sometimes this gets some missed too. Older adults with late onset were more likely to be referred to treatment by an employer and less likely to be referred by the criminal justice system. So that also seems to be a little bit different. And those with late onset were more likely to use heroin more frequently, but less likely to inject than those with typical onset. So they tend to be, this tends to be more smoked. So this comes, and this all comes from a study from the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry that came out in May of 2021. Really, that's just a really interesting, like, introduction to just our older populations. So we definitely are seeing a steady rise in our in o, opiate use disorder in our older populations. But Paul, I think you have a, a few more, like pieces on this as well. I mean, the points that um, after looking through a lot of the research and the data regarding, um, you know, older population, older adults and opioid use disorders, there's a couple of points. And then we'll talk about um, some treatment guidelines that actually don't come from the US, they come from Canada, which are very, very good that we can discuss. But, you know, you brought up iatrogenic correlation between opioid use disorder and older adults. And this is definitely true. So we're seeing that prescription long-term or chronic prescribing of opioid therapy, which is by definition an opioid prescription for more than three months, can be correlated with the development of an opioid use disorder. It is not always associated with an opioid use disorder. And we have to be very careful with um, all people, but especially 
older adults as they have been on chronic opioid therapy and have tolerance and withdrawal just as a physiological response to being on opioids to distinguish that between a true opioid use disorder, which is categorized by the DSM-5 with all the criteria necessary to meet either a mild, moderate, or severe use disorder. So it becomes difficult, and sometimes people want to just assume everyone with long-term opioid use could have a use disorder. Now, the opposite is true in older adults, where people, older adults with an opioid use disorder may be missed because they're considered low risk just by nature of their age, right? I think we all tend to just be like, oh, well, that's just, you know, an 82-year-old, you know, lady with chronic degenerative um, back disease. And of course, she's fine with her opioids. And that's not to be saying that her opioids are causing her significant distress because of compulsive use, cravings, neglect of, you know, family responsibilities, etc. And she actually has a use disorder, which is causing, which needs to be addressed. So can I make one caveat in there? It's so interesting as we take histories that many of these patients, if you go back, way back in their histories, most of them had a substance use disorder somewhere before they were put on these opiates for or for something, something else. So either they may have had a stimulant use disorder or an alcohol use disorder. And sometimes it's even in their chart. And then they somebody still put them on long-term opiates and wasn't monitoring. And then like I, I had a patient a few years ago that came to me and was and was smoking heroin because but they were put on daily opiates for some chronic, you know, back pain. And it went on for years and years. And then eventually they were cut off because they kept running out of their pills. But as I went through their history, they had they had an alcohol use disorder that had gone on for or years. And I said, did your, did your physician know this? Well, yeah, I told them, you know? <laughs> and so I think that's, that's, what's really interesting is these people had those risk factors and those red flags that were there. And, but sometimes again, it's just like when you're looking at the granny sitting there in the chair, they just think, Oh, they can't do that. And so, again, it's like you said, it's absolutely just missed or dismissed or these red flags are just ignored. They're just ignored, even though they're sitting right in front of you. But sorry, I just kind of went off on a tangent there. Yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely. And we have to be aware of those risks. But we also, and that brings me to the next point, which is we have to be acutely aware of the pain. I call it the pain conundrum. And that is that we have a lot of complicating factors that play into older adults when it comes to one, opioid use in general, and two, opioid use disorder, because it's nearly always entwined into some kind of pain syndrome. So what do we do about that? First of all, we've got to make sure that we treat pain appropriately, okay, no matter who it is, no matter if it's someone who has an opioid use disorder or a history of alcohol use disorder, etc. Everybody deserves to have pain addressed. However, whether or not putting someone on chronic opioid therapy for non-malignant pain is appropriate is a whole nother discussion that we're not going to go into in this podcast, right? But we do see a pain conundrum with older adults with opioid use disorder because we end up having folks who meet criteria 
for an opioid use disorder, an opioid addiction, but they also have complex and severe chronic pain. And so what do you do? How do you discern between the two? And then how do you recognize and continue to treat pain while treating the addiction and vice versa? How do you treat their addiction, their opioid use disorder while still treating their pain? So I just wanted to bring that up because that's acute, something that we have to be aware of. I mean, for everybody, but especially old folks. And then again, you brought this up, but the substance using population have been aging. So the baby boomers, as we all know, are now kind of our aging adults in our society. And these were the folks that used psychedelics and cannabis and um, heroin in the 60s. And those experiences don't just vanish because they're now 70 years old, right? And so they are more susceptible because not necessarily because of experimentation, but those of them who did have, you know, substance use disorders, so use with negative consequences, compulsive use, etc., in their past may be now have use um, problems now, and we have to identify that and treat it. I wanted to bring up uh, something that you touched on, but we've seen an unfortunate conversion of people go from prescription pain use to heroin. And that's the second wave of the opioid epidemic. We talked about the first wave earlier on with overprescribing, particularly of oxycodone and of course, oxycontin. And we all know about that. And then the second wave was when oxycontin formulation was changed to a non-abusable quotation mark formulation and uh, supply began to be reduced. We saw a massive shift of people going to heroin. Well, that didn't spare the older population. And so you and I have both treated many, many patients who don't fit the regular stereotypical box of someone who uses heroin. And they're subject to all the risks of heroin use as anyone else. In fact, even more so because of their age, their risks for sleep disordered breathing and central sleep apnea and all their other comorbid conditions. So be aware that especially if people are taken off of their opioids suddenly or inappropriately or tapered too quickly, the risk of going to an illicit form of opioid is high and we need to be aware of that risk, right? We've got to treat the addiction aggressively, not just cut people off of their prescription opioids because we're inheriting them and we've discovered that they get 90 oxycodone a month and we don't want to do that anymore. And, you know, I'm picking on residents here, but when I worked with the residency program, I the residents just didn't want to have any part of opioid prescribing. And I really understand that. And of course, there's new guidelines and new evidence to show that opioid, chronic opioid therapy probably does more harm than it good. But we do need to be really careful about how we approach people who either just have physiological tolerance and withdrawal to opioids or who have addiction. And I'll talk about that again in a minute. The other thing now is it's not just um, switching to heroin. Of course, it's switching to Kratom, which has its problems. And I'm seeing a lot of that down here where I'm working, but especially switching to fentanyl. And older adults are using fentanyl just like younger adults, and we're seeing overdose overdoses, right? Yes, it's so terrible. Yeah. So the other two things is just, you know, um, when you're seeing patients that are older, you've got to screen them and diagnose them for an opioid use disorder, just like you would anyone else. Like, be aware of the red flags, like Darlene said, and be aware that this is a condition that really negatively affects people's quality of life. So you don't want to miss it. It's not about stigmatizing or catching people or firing them. It's about recognizing that they have a devastating mental health slash medical 
medical condition that deserves to be treated fairly and compassionately. And I want to go over some of the treatment recommendations um, next, but I wanted to just say that we know now from a very interesting study that we already reviewed in one of our earlier podcast episodes that there's an increased risk of suicide suicidal ideation and suicide completion in people who are tapered off their opioids too quickly. Well, there's an article, uh, let's see, where is it from? It's from the Internal Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry as well in 2019 that shows that prescription opioid and benzodiazepine misuse is associated with SI, suicidal ideation in older adults. So just be aware that not only are all the risks that we already know are associated with opioid use or overuse and misuse, but be acutely aware that older adults are at increased risk of suicidal ideation when they are running into problems with either misuse of their benzos or misuse of their opioids. So be very careful. This is a very tender and vulnerable subject when you're treating your older adults when it comes to opioids and opioid use disorder. That's so important. I don't think we can stress the importance of that because just their stage of life is already very vulnerable and they're already at a higher risk. But then when you add in these substances, I mean, you're just doubling and tripling that risk. So that's a really interesting study that you're bringing up. Yeah, in fact, here's the statistics for it, right? The results of this of the study, um, this was published uh, by Shepes and uh, Simone Wastilla in January of 2019, is after controlling for all the correlates in the past year, 2.2% of older U.S. adults not engaged in either opioid or benzodiazepine misuse reported past year suicidal ideation. Okay, so 2% versus 25.4% of those who mis misused both medication classes um, endorse suicidality. So, I mean, that's a huge increase. So if you've got patients who are having trouble, older patients having trouble um, with benzos and opioids, 25% of them endorse suicidal ideation. So that's a huge risk. Okay, this is the last thing I'm going to say um, tonight. And then, and, and that is, uh, I looked for some specific guidelines for the treatment or the identification and care of older patients, older adults with opioids, and I couldn't really find anything in the US, but came across a really excellent guideline out of Canada. And it's called um, the Canadian Treatment Guidelines um, on Opioid Use Disorder Among Older Adults. So it's Canadian Guidelines on Opioid Use Disorder Among Older Adults. This was published in several places, but you can find it in the Canadian Geriatric Journal in March of 2020. It's a really excellent article, I would recommend any of you um, read it. And it goes through, oh my goodness, how many? Like, Lots of recommendations, like 32 or something recommendations, which are all evidence-based and they they grade the evidence based on the quality um, and the strength. And um, they give you some very clear guidelines and they're really clear about general guidelines for prescribing opioids for pain to older adults for both acute pain and non-malignant um, chronic pain. They stress that we should give naloxone to all older adults, and of course we should. But we, again, don't assume that because someone is in their 70s or 80s, 
that they don't need naloxone, that they're not at risk for overdosing. In fact, they probably are more at risk. So teach them about naloxone, make sure their caregivers have access to naloxone. And then like I just talked about, um, go slow with tapers. So if you are tapering your patients off of an opioid, you need to go slower even as you would with a younger adult. And you want to do about 5% every two weeks or less and take breaks. Okay. And they have a recommendation around that with evidence to support it. The other recommendations that I wanted to talk about were they say buprenorphine naloxone is considered first line for opioid withdrawal management in older adults. Okay. And then also buprenorphine maintenance is considered first line for maintenance treatment of opioid use disorder. And that's a strong quality strength recommendation. And remember that Darlene was saying that if you just do withdrawal management with buprenorphine, then people are more at risk um, of adverse outcomes versus maintenance treatment. So keeping people on buprenorphine um, ongoing. So um, other things, you know, they have lots of other recommendations like the threshold to admit an older adult with social, psychological or physical comorbidities to hospital care or residential treatment with opioid use disorder should be um, lower than for other adults just because of their comorbidities and the need for increased social supports. And then take in consideration that they have different drug metabolism, um, considering an aging liver, et cetera, and other medications which may interact. So you typically want to start with lower doses of um, medications for the treatment of their opioid use disorder and escalate the dose more slowly and keep monitoring them very closely. And I have to say, I found that to be particularly true when I have started... And I'd be interested to see what you say too, Darlene. When I have started patients who are older on buprenorphine, I've always I've had to go quite slowly, go low and slow, because they often don't tolerate higher doses, even though you think, oh, they'll be fine on eight or 16 milligrams. It often makes them quite ill. Have you found that to be true? I absolutely agree. So sometimes our usual like dose adjustments that we would use in a younger person it's like you said, either their other medications that they're on or their other health conditions or it's just their age. This might be their only medication. I've seen it in all three situations. They just don't feel right. They're either extremely sedated or they struggle with severe constipation, sweating. Just It might just be some nuisance side effects or really serious side effects. I totally agree. I think, I think we've talked about this tip before, but one of the tips and one of the things I've really noticed is that we often overdose people with buprenorphine when we're starting them on it if they have low tolerance or if they've been on prescription opioids versus heroin or fentanyl. So this is especially true for older adults. What Darlene said, I totally agree with. But, you know, that's pretty much there. There are like 30 something, I think 36 recommendations in that document. It's a very good document. I, again, I recommend you all read it. Um, and then there's a good article called the Opioid Public Health Emergency and Older Adults. This was you know, put out by um, the National Aging Network, um, authored by Tilly in 2017. And they they cite, you know, the VA and the DOD and ASAM and lots of other good sources, basically just saying that the data shows that medications um, such as buprenorphine Im- treat, excuse me, improve treatment outcomes and quality of life in older adults. And we also don't want to forget that we refer people to counseling and psychosocial services as well. But research does not support using counseling alone. So um, don't forget about that. I mean, just remember that the folks 
no matter what age, still deserve the gold standard treatment. And we've got to remove what kind of ideas we have about what they should or shouldn't do um, and what they may or may not want too. We've got to ask them what they want. So that's what I have to say about older adults. And I think it does warrant its own episode in the future. And I think uh, we'll invite a guest who's an expert in geriatric care to join us to talk about that. But what else, Darlene? Do you have anything else to add to that? No, I think that's fantastic. That's a really great document. And we'll put that in the show notes. So in summary, we have removal of the X waiver, which means that you no longer have to submit the notification for intent. Anyone who has a DEA license and the ability to write Schedule 3 and above drugs can now write buprenorphine naloxone. There is no limit. So that should remove all barriers for care. And so now we just need to continue to work on the stigma and the training. And that's what this is for. So tune in. We'll teach you what to do. (laughs) Now, remember, adolescents and our older populations, they don't always present in the usual way. And they don't always think that they they tend to not always think that they have a problem and they don't always necessarily have the same negative consequences. And so those, we need to screen for it. We need to offer them treatment and remember that maintenance should be offered to all, including our adolescents and our older populations. And the one treatment recommendation is buprenorphine is recommended in our adolescents and maintenance and also in our older populations, buprenorphine is considered first-line treatment for withdrawal and maintenance. All right. So I think that's a wrap. And thank you so much, Paula. That was great. Thanks. Good night. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.